So, uh, softball season's been going for a while now, and I don't know if you've heard, Leonard Streets has a team. Coach uh, Collins back there has got us in a well-oiled machine, and because of my schedule, I haven't been able to make a game until last Friday. So, so stoked, show up for the game, and of course, it gets rained out. But just so the record will show, um, once it was rained out in the ump left, we still had a, a practice game against that other team from Rocket Donuts, and we pretty much dominated, so... Just, <laughs> just want to say, but I don't really want to talk about softball. I want to talk about caterpillars. That's right, caterpillars. See, when we were warming up for the softball game, there's this whole row of alder trees, and I was checking out these alder trees, and there's this, all these silken pockets of caterpillars crawling around, orange and black and hairy all over with tons of legs, and they're just crawling around, and they're, they're eating leaves, right? That's what caterpillars do. They walk around on sticks, and they eat leaves, and if you... Um, or to just sit there and watch caterpillars maybe two, three, four days in a row. You just see them doing what caterpillars do, eating green stuff, right? Uh, but should a caterpillar survive curious children and hunting spiders and angry birds, it would eventually form a cocoon, right? And in that cocoon, it would undergo a metamorphosis and completely change. It would come out a different being with six legs and antennae and wings and be able to fly, if you didn't know that a metamorphosis had taken place between caterpillar world and butterfly moth world, uh, you, w- you would just think they're two completely different animals, unrelated. The world of the caterpillar, sticks and leaves. The world of the butterfly, or the moth, flight, flowers. And some of them migrate hundreds and even thousands of miles. It's a completely different life. And the Christian life is built around a different reality than life that organizes itself apart from God. And in the Bible, when we talk about society organized without God in the middle, that's what the Bible calls the world. So when the Bible says the world, don't be like the world, it's not saying like the earth. It's talking about this society organized without God. Jesus began his ministry in the flesh by declaring the good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. That the people sitting in darkness had seen a great light. And that he himself is that light. In short, because Jesus was born in the flesh, died on a cross, rose from the dead, and now reigns over all things. We who believe in this good news, this new reality, ought to live differently. We need a metamorphosis. We are being transformed, if you will, from caterpillars into butterflies. In Romans 12, the Apostle Paul uses language, the language of metamorphosis, when he talks about living for Jesus and the gospel. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. And in the Greek, that word transformed is metamorphosis. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what are we to be transformed into? Nothing short of the image of Christ. High order. Now, writing from prison, nearly 30 years after Jesus' resurrection, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to a bunch of churches in Asia Minor, what we call Turkey today. And we call that letter Ephesians. In this letter, which is broken up into six chapters, Paul seems to be bursting with absolute enthusiasm. In fact, we showed how in chapter 1 there's this one run-on sentence. It's like 154 words in a row, just no punctuation in the original language. And he's just bursting as he wants to communicate our identity in Christ. His letter is medicine for the mind. It provides healing for our hearts 
If our minds are to be renewed and transformed, Ephesians is a picture of who we really are. It's a picture of who we are to be transformed into. Paul begins his letter by praising God, the giver of every spiritual blessing in Christ. He praises God for choosing you and I before the foundation of the world, for adopting us as sons and daughters of the living God. Paul tells us that through the blood of Jesus, we have been forgiven and made new. And the very mystery of God's will, His plan for the whole universe, yeah, He revealed that to us. And specifically, it's this. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says that all things will be summed up in Christ one day. Christ will have all the judgment over those who don't repent, who don't turn to Him. And all for those who do trust in Him, for those who do repent, all the loose storylines of our lives that we regret, all the brokenness is going to be healed and summed up and made new in Christ. Even the created order is going to be made whole again. Amen? I'm just scratching the surface here, but Paul wants us to know this because all, because all of Jesus has done for us, we ought to live differently. We ought to stop being caterpillars and start being butterflies. And one of the ways that the Bible speaks of living is by using the term walking. If someone says, how goes your walk with Jesus? That's kind of a Christian-y term. Uh, what they really mean is, how goes your life with Jesus? The two are oftentimes synonymous in the Bible. All throughout Scripture, we're encouraged to walk with God as opposed to the ways of the world. So Paul picks up on this walking language in the fourth chapter of Ephesians. And he says, all because of this good news in the first three chapters, he wants us to walk in unity. This new life that we live, there's no room for petty divisions between us, right? Uh, we were all headed for sin and death, every single person. But God, because of His goodness and His grace, rescued us. And therefore, because we've all needed rescue, we have no leg to stand on in judgment of one another. We're to walk in maturity. Paul says, okay, you're saved. Grow up now. Uh, time to break out of the cocoon. Try, time to stretch your wings and fly into this new world that Jesus died to make available. And we're to walk in truth. The renewing of our minds and hearts should lead us to be people of integrity who use the power of, of language and our words to build people up in Christ, not to cut people down. And at the end of chapter 4, in the beginning of chapter 5 in Ephesians, Paul calls us to walk like God. We were made in His image from the very beginning. It says so in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And through our sin, through our rebellion, that image of God in us is broken. But Paul tells us in Ephesians that, that Christ wants to recreate us, to make us that image whole again. And we are to walk into that new reality, to walk like our Heavenly Father. This evening, we're going to continue in Paul's line of thinking of how to walk, where he calls us to walk as children of light. And I want to encourage you to stand with me as we read our scripture for tonight. It's Ephesians 5, 3 through 14. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper for the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, 
but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. For this reason it says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Thank you once again for your word, Lord. And once again, as we read it, as I even say these words out loud, it seems wonderful, and it seems, nay, impossible. I'm thankful that all things are possible in Christ. I'm thankful that you want this for us more than we may want it for ourselves. And I pray for a a transformation, Lord, that as we study your word, you would give us a sweet tooth for the things of God and a sour taste for the things that lead to death. May a metamorphosis happen in our hearts this evening. Amen. You may be seated. So there are obvious differences, right, between our culture here in Bellingham in the Pacific Northwest and the Mediterranean world back in the first century that Paul's writing in. Our architecture is different. Our modes of transportation are vastly different. Our clothing is different. Our language is different. Our worldviews are completely different. But one thing that is very much the same as the first century Mediterranean or 21st century Pacific Northwest is we like sex. It's, uh, we, we, both cultures are sexually saturated cultures. No matter what time period you live in, what culture, uh, people have always liked sex. And I'm thankful for that because we wouldn't exist if people didn't like sex before us, right? It's how our species sticks around. God, newsflash, invented sex. He really likes it. He thinks it's a good thing. Uh, he, it, it, it is a good thing between a husband and a wife. It's one of the most intimate vulnerable activities you can engage in and it's also one of the most abused sex has a powerful draw literally in your brain it releases chemicals that are more powerful than heroin more addicting causes euphoria it causes a chemical bond between two people because sex is so alluring people abuse it market it sing songs about it make it into an art form 
In 2004, Corey and I visited Pompeii, uh, south of, of Rome, in Italy. Of course, Pompeii is famous for the fact that in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius blew up and hot ash covered Pompeii and nearly instantly mummified people. Uh, I guess it sucks for them, but the good thing for us is that it almost completely preserved this town. And so even today, it's still an active ar- archaeological site. And many of these homes and, and um, shops and uh, agoras, these... Uh, Uh, marketplaces are perfectly preserved. In fact, there are still frescoes on some of the walls where some of the wealthier people lived and they were able to afford that. Um, Beautiful pictures. I saw one picture that looked just like my dog growing up. Remember that? I got that. Uh, But then, you know, we're, we're going through this particular house, a wealthy person's house, and there's all these paintings, and I'm like, whoa, Corey, did you see that one? It's like a picture of three people not two doing something sexual and I was like oh that's that's really interesting and then there's another one where the guy in his uh like the courtyard area where you would entertain guests he has a picture of himself with his manhood on a scale and it's like way out of proportion he's like okay this guy is uh really full of himself okay uh so Paul is writing to a group of people I mean this is not far from where he's, he's writing at all, and it's definitely the same time period. He's writing to a, a group of people who live in a culture that at least you could say had some sexually promiscuous streaks. Okay? Um, some of the religious temple of the day, where Paul was writing in Ephesus, uh, actually had prostitution as part of their worship. You could go to a, uh, a temple where a goddess was a, maybe a goddess of fertility, and you pay a price and you sleep with someone, and that's part of, part of worship. Um, so keep in mind that when Paul's writing this statement about no immorality or impurity, he's writing to Christian people, people who have repented of their sin and who are placing their trust in Jesus for the forgiveness and new life. These are ones that Paul says, you are now living stones. You are a temple of the living God and where his spirit dwells. So he tells them that immorality and impurity must not even be named among them. Like they shouldn't be known for their immorality and impurity. Now, immorality, that kind of sounds vague, right? Let me, let me clear it up for you. In the Greek, the word is porneia, right? So words that sound familiar. It, it, that's where we get our word pornography from. Um, and it literally means sexual activity outside of marriage. Uh, Jesus teaches about this in his Sermon on the Mount where he talks about the dangers of looking at the opposite sex with the intent of lusting after them, of making them an object to please you. Uh, The idea there is, he says, hey, if your right eye makes you stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And the idea there is, is not that we should all pluck our eyes off or cut our hands off. It's that we should take lust that seriously. Like it's that big of a deal. It's that harmful to us that Jesus uses this extreme kind of language. The second term, impurity, is literally catharsis. So you, that catharsis word might be familiar to you. Sometimes uh, we use that term in English even. It was a cathartic experience, which means it was a healing or a cleansing experience. Sometimes if you ever just had a good cry, guys, I know that's never happened to you, but if you've ever had a good cry or something like that, you might say, that was, a, that was cathartic. I feel cleansed out because of that. Now in Greek, when you put an ah in front of a word, it often makes it the opposite. So instead of catharsis, you have acatharsis, which means impurity, right? Unclean. So, Paul warns us 
about acathartic or defiled stance towards pornea or illegitimate sex. He says that that's a dangerous road to go down. See, our culture unsuccessfully, I think, tries to walk a tightrope with sexuality. On the one hand, we are really over-sexualized. Check out our advertisements that use sex shamelessly to sell products. They make women more and more unrealistically skinny, passive, weak, like products for the taking. And once you make a woman like that, if you can apply an image or a product to her, well then it's just something that you can use and take. Our television and movies and music portray sex as a benign extracurricular activity. Everybody does it when you're bored. Uh, it's something that people do with no strings attached. Extramarital affairs in, in music and movies and TV, they're shown as kind of the norm. In fact, even a necessity, like if your spouse or your partner is uh, uh, too busy at work or something like that, it's almost your right to go mess around. Um, Porn stars are glorified as, as people who are truly un, uh, liberated. They're the only ones who are really liberated in society and unhindered by archaic constraints of a puritanical uh, past. But on the other side of this false picture is the horrible reality that over 50% of our marriages in this country end in divorce. I just talked to a wife in our community this week who found out last week that for her whole marriage her husband has been having extramarital affairs with men. Tell her, tell her that sex is just some kind of loosey-goosey benign thing that's not a big deal. And it's not just married people. I've counseled numerous single people not even going all the way with sex, but when you give yourself up like that, there is an emptiness. Um, there's a loss of personhood and dignity. If we're so liberated in our modern se uh, sexuality, why are so many losing jobs and relationships because of addictions to pornography? Last year, the porn industry generated over 300 billion with a B dollars. More than the NBA, NFL, and Major League Baseball combined in revenue. The thriving porn industry reveals our bondage to sexual lust. And what Paul says, what he's saying is that the person who's in Christ, when we're stuck in that life, we're crawling on sticks and leaves like caterpillars when Christ has already died to make us fly away in f true freedom. In fact... Of all the sins Paul talks about, and there's some very important ones, but in all his letters, sex is the one he says, flee from that one. Just run. <laughs> Don't pray about it and, and try and... It's just not even worth it. Just run away. He's not talking to non-believers here. He's talking to people who have already pledged their allegiance to Jesus. And that's why this is such a big deal. I want you to get this straight, because the church is really judgmental against the world. How can we expect anyone to have this kind of standard of living? Like, we shouldn't be focused on what everybody else is doing. Paul is writing here to people who have already said yes to Jesus and no to the world. So that's, then the bar goes up. He expects something. He expects us to actually follow through on that decision to follow Jesus. We're adopted into God's family. And if we're part of His family, part of the temple of the living God then we are part of Christ's body. And we ought to walk in a way that respects that body. Paul continues. 
The next word he uses is greed. And greed is just that impulse to just have a little bit more. To never quite be satisfied. I just need a little bit more. In context, greed here in this passage certainly refers to to sexual greed. But it also um, refers to food and money and power and land and clothes and you name it. Uh, Greed knows no bounds. And behind our word greed stands the Greek pleonexia, which in Jewish thought was connected with idolatry. And here's why that's such a big deal. Greed is the irrational desire to make myself Number one, it makes my appetites paramount to everything else. In the Garden of Eden, Adam Adam and Eve had everything in all creation, had a perfect, unbroken relationship with God. They just didn't have one little thing, the fruit from the tree of good and evil. And lust and greed consumed their minds and let it lead to the sin of idolatry, making themselves and their desires paramount to God. So, greed causes us to make ourselves gods. And the problem with that, besides we're not God, and that would be a big problem, but the problem with that in our relationships is that if I'm a god, then you instantly become one of two things. An obstacle for me to get what I want, or means to an end for me to get to what I want. But neither one of those options makes you a person. See? You become a thing in my world. That's why this is so serious. Because we are made in God's image. We have no right to treat each other as if they're means to an end or an obstacle in the way. Immorality, impurity, and greed are a horrible mixture. In the U.S., uh, where we actually keep stats of these things, one out of every six women in their lifetime will either be raped or escape a rape attempt. As a father of two girls, soon to be three, that's not good enough. One in ten children, boys and girls, in this country, are victims of incest. Do you think everyone who's a victim of incest comes out and reports it? My guess is the numbers are higher. So as much as we think we are liberated in our sexuality, we have a serious problem on our hands. And so Paul goes further. Beyond moving uh, past sexual slavery and greed, we're to avoid the type of speech that enables sexual impurity and greed. In chapter 4, just a couple weeks ago, we saw how powerful speech can be. With our language, we have the power to tear people down. You know that, right? Um, Especially guys, we can be a little bit rough, but... You can just so damage uh, a child. Like, if I just raise my voice the wrong way, I see the little lip quiver on Stella. She's very sensitive. And I just, I have to be careful, you guys. We have to be careful with our speech. And, And equally powerful is our ability to build people up and to strengthen people in Christ. So here, Paul focuses on these three related types of speech and reference to sexual immorality, impurity, and greed. And he says, there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting. And, and I know in that translation in particular, it kind of sounds like your grandma threatening to uh, wash your mouth off with soap. It, it's, I mean, it sounds hokey, right? Like, there should be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting in this house, young man. I mean, it kind of sounds like that, right? Uh, I admit, um, 
Yeah, it's kind of dorky. But let's, let's just unpack this a little bit. Uh, the first word, filthiness, is literally shameful speech. It's, it's obscenity. We're kind of comfortable with obscenity. So obscenity is really um, disrespectful talk. So um, uh, that can be even a relative term, right? Like, well, what's disrespectful? Around my mom, certain things would be disrespectful that wouldn't be disrespectful around, you know, maybe a construction site or the group of sailors or, you know, that kind of thing. So... Just, just so you think what's, what's really obscene or what's relative, um, what should our standard be? Well, we're supposed to be children of the living God, right? Like, he says, you know, I've adopted you into this family. So that means God's dad. And last I checked my theology, let's see, he's omnipresent, which means everywhere. Um, pretty much puts me at a situation where it's not okay to be disrespectful to God and, and there's a, I don't have time to explain all of that, but here's one thing that you could go away with and you'd be better off for it. If God is my dad, adopted dad, and he's your adopted dad, then that means anytime I am rude to you, disrespectful to you, evil to you, break you down instead of build you up, I'm doing that to one of his kids. That would be obscene. That's the definition there. So, um, second is this word silly talk. Um, don't get the wrong impression. Like, God is not against a good joke, right? Uh, maybe even a little silliness. I can get kind of wacky myself. I mean, you ever think who invented the duck-billed platypus, right? Right? Or the three-toed sloth? I mean, I was just checking out funny animal pictures. And, uh, yeah, there's some strange ones out there. And our father thought those up. So um, he, he likes a good laugh. Um, but what is this word, this silly talk? It comes from the Greek, uh, moro. Logia. Now, logia means word or speech, logos, right? Um, logos Bible software peeps, word, right? Word. So it also means speech in the verbal form. Moro is where we get moron. So literally, Paul is saying, no moronic speech, please. Don't be an idiot. And the way biblical foolishness is talked about, it's not like an, an IQ thing. Well, it might be, but moronic speech is really speech that doesn't act as though God were God. Of the fool in the Bible is the one who doesn't trust that there's a God. Um, so it's, like, it's basically the attitude that I can get away with whatever I want because there's no one ever going to hold me accountable. That would be moronic speech, right? Silly talk. That's what that means. And finally, Paul warns us against coarse jesting. <laughs> coarse jesting. It's the kind of joking that makes light of sexuality and greed. So you know how it is. Like, you can take a real serious issue. Um, in fact, I'll use, I'll use a positive version. I worked in the Coast Guard at, at Alaska Flight 261. Um, it was a horrible... The, the whole plane went down. The whole... Everyone was lost on that plane. And so I was working on the pier where we're pulling up stuff. Uh, it was very heavy emotionally. And we were reconstructing the plane and the seating pattern and all that for the... Um, Department of Transportation and stuff like that. Well, I heard these, um, these medical, these physicians who were the coroners, there were six of them working all of this, and they were making jokes about the situation. And I thought, oh, this is horrible, until I got a little more counseling and stuff under my belt, and I realized that sometimes people in response situations use black humor as the only coping mechanism so they don't get broken and insane, really. Um, so that, that could be a positive use, but the same situation is used um, when we talk about sexuality 
and impurity and greed, when we make jokes about something that's really serious or really evil and really nasty, what we kind of do is take away the force of the evil. And we make it kind of acceptable. And we might not really agree that it's the right thing to do or the right thing to talk about, but when we joke about stuff like that, it implicitly says it's kind of okay. That's what Paul's warning us against here. The more we make light of subjects that are evil and dark, the more we implicitly say, hey, that's all right. It's kind of like making a joke against a different ethnic group, right? And you probably wouldn't do that if, you know, you probably wouldn't tell, uh, uh, well, I'm quarter Mexican, right? So like my grandmother born in Mexico, and so sometimes people don't know that, and you get the, you know, the certain jokes, and I don't get that offended about it, but I bring that up because I don't want to point anybody else out. But I guess my point is, you probably wouldn't tell a joke like that if you knew someone from that ethnicity was standing beside you. And if that's true, you probably shouldn't say it at all. Because what that does is just creates this atmosphere where it's not that big a deal. And it really is that big a deal. It is that big a deal when we, when we make light of a serious issue. Because there is no neutral speech. I want you to get that. There's, there's really no words you can use that are neutral. You're either building up a worldview or breaking down a worldview. There's no in-between. So the antidote to the, all this immorality and worthless speech is not what you would expect. It's not political lobbying or public protesting. It's not censorship of the media and it's not the religious right. The antidote is thanksgiving. Not the holiday, but like being thankful. Thanksgiving. See, we, had, we turn to alternatives to God, like sex and greed, when we take for granted the good things we have. But there's so much to be thankful for. Listen to these words from 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience was with the branding iron. Listen to this. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared with those who believe and know the truth. Now, this is the punch. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. See, historically people have dealt with lust and perversion of good things in two unhealthy ways. They've either embraced the unhealthy thing and just said, hey, it's really hard to resist, so let's just, woo, let's go all the way in. Live it up for tomorrow we die. That's kind of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians. He's saying, don't do that. Don't adopt that licensure, uh, that, that culture where it just accepts everything. Then the, the situation in Timothy's um, world is that there's actually a movement of people who got super conservative and they said well we shouldn't even be married anymore because sex is bad and we shouldn't eat anything but the minimal calories just so that um, because you know you don't want to even take the chance of being a glutton and so people were not enjoying the good things of God and both of those extremes are unhealthy see rather then go to the extreme of just no, no boundaries or extreme boundaries. We ought to live in gratitude within the bounds that God gives us. Enjoy the good things in life in moderation and with generosity and giving thanks to God in all things. Give thanks for your job, if you have one, instead of complaining about it. 
right? Uh, give thanks for your family instead of griping about what, do, what you don't get out of it. Give thanks for the green in Bellingham instead of whining about the rain. Uh, okay, I'm preaching to myself there. <clears throat> give thanks for singleness. Paul talks a lot about singleness being a really good thing. He says, I'm glad I'm single. I can do a lot more for God than you married people can. I don't have any. And be thankful in your marriage. There's, there's benefits to both. Be thankful. Paul takes these issues of immorality and greed and, and, and horrible speech. He takes it seriously because God takes these issues seriously. Jesus died to set us free from slavery, to sin and death, and he calls us to repent. Elizabeth read those words of Jesus from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Repent and believe in this good news. Those who don't repent, who don't change the way of life and follow Jesus, they will be judged. Oftentimes we reap judgment in this life. Like when we engage in immorality, and all of us have slipped there from time to time, right? Do you not feel less than whole? Like a flitting wraith walking around the earth rather than a person who is full of the life of God, living robustly? That's, that's a, a little bit of judgment now. But we see it all over the media. I mean, we know people, right, who are living a dual life or who are stuck in immorality. And you think, they, they go to their grave fat and happy. They never get judged. The biblical message is, actually, they will be. They, uh, this is a crazy story. So my friend John Teeter, uh, consummate evangelist, he, this dude is awesome. And he, he, he's like planted a church in Compton, L.A. Really awesome guy, prophetic. And he, he rolls with these rappers and he um, gets like tickets to box seats at the Laker games. So he's, he's connected. And his mentor is Daryl Johnson, who is a professor of mine up at Regent. So every once in a while, he'll travel up there and meet with Daryl, who's a pastor in Vancouver now. So he was up in Vancouver just a couple months ago, actually in the wintertime, and was flying home. And he realized, like, he, he travels all the time, so he got a first-class upgrade. So he's sitting in first class next to this guy, and he recognized the guy was a, an occasional actor on Law & Order. And so he was, oh, you know, talking to this guy a little bit. And so um, they both have iPads, and, um, and he shows John a little bit of, like, uh, a show that hasn't yet aired, and, like, showing him a little bit of the clip, the trailer. So John puts his iPad away and goes to sleep. The other man goes to sleep. And he wakes up and says, my iPad's gone. John's like, no way. And somebody else in first class said, wait, I saw this person from coach come up. And I didn't see if they took anything, but it's the only activity up here. And so this guy was like to the flight attendant, hey, can I, can we search them? And stuff like that. She goes, no, we have no authority to do anything. And so he was just totally like, they wouldn't call the cops to meet him at the gate or anything like that. So the guy's just out an iPad and he's like, hey, you're a pastor. What do you? What do you think about this? Is this going to come back to them like karma or something like that? He goes, no, brother. Something way worse than karma. If that person doesn't repent, they're going to hell. <laughs> and he just said it straight up. But I mean, sometimes we need like, like that, is, that is the message. Like, like without Jesus, I mean, we, we like to talk about all the positives of the gospel. And there are tons, right? But like, God would not have gone to the cross if he didn't need to go to the cross. Like, we need forgiveness, or there is judgment. And that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. Like, you don't want to go back down that road, people. You don't want to embrace that life of immorality because there really is judgment. Like, that's why Jesus came and that's why we need to trust him. 
Mostly, um, Paul says that those who actively embrace that lifestyle will receive judgment. He, he's not talking about, A, people who slip once in a while, who then repent and ask for forgiveness. He's not talking about that. Right? Brothers and sisters, I know that we all struggle with different things in this area. He's not talking about it when you, when you fall and you repent. He's talking about when you get to that stage in your life, you're like, you know what? I'm never going to change. I don't care anymore. But when you embrace the lifestyle, that's when he's talking about watch out. He says that people who embrace immorality and aren't repentant and don't ask God for forgiveness, they don't inherit the kingdom of heaven when it comes. And frankly, you know, if you don't like the kingdom of heaven now, like if you don't like starting to try and live in that environment, like God's not going to make you live there for all eternity. So Paul says that before we trusted in Jesus, we were darkness. Now that's a profound statement. He doesn't say before Jesus you were walking in darkness or that you were like in a dark environment. He said darkness was in you and me. In fact, we were so darkened in our understanding that we didn't even know we were lost, didn't even know we needed Jesus until he reached out to us. But now, in Christ, Paul says, you are light, right? Jesus has something to say about this in Matthew chapter 5. He says, you are the light of the world. He doesn't say strive to be the light of the world. He doesn't say do enough right stuff so then I can call you the light of the world. He says, in me, you are the light of the world. And a city on a hill can't be hidden. You don't, you don't be the light and then cover it up. It, it's made to shine. You are the light because Christ is the light. And through faith, he's in you. In verse 14 of Ephesians 5, there's a quote that says, Awake, sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Quote, this quote has allusions to a couple verses in Isaiah, but it's interesting that it doesn't say... It was written, awake sleeper. It says it is said, awake sleeper. And what a lot of scholars think is that this was probably a baptismal liturgy in the early church, at least part of it. The idea is um, when you went under the water in baptism, you were dying with Jesus to your old life, the old life of darkness. And when you come out, when you break the crest of the water, you're coming into the light, into this new world. The radiant life of Christ. And that is good news. Remember your baptism. Remember that you've gone through the waters. You have passed out of darkness and into light. Metamorphosis, caterpillars to butterflies. Agents of darkness to bearers and sharers of light and life and goodness. You and your life in Christ. Uh, it leads to not harsh words and to judgmentalism. Your goodness and life in Christ is going to just expose the darkness by the way you live. And when darkness is exposed around you and because of you, two things can happen. One is you can be hated. And oftentimes you will be. When you get healthy, people don't like it. Because it shows that they are unhealthy. All right? And Jesus actually got killed for it. Do you think Jesus got killed for healing people and saying great things about God? No, he got, he got killed because... His health and what he was bringing was not in line with other people's agenda. They didn't like that. But some 
will be convicted by the Spirit, and some will want to know the source of your light, and some will come to know Jesus, who is the light of the world. Amen? So, I end with this question. Do you know Jesus? Are you walking as a child of light? Would you like to? Let's pray. Lord, there are some who for the first time um, are sensing that tug on their hearts to trust you, to ask for forgiveness, to be a child of light. I pray your mercy and your grace, your touch. I pray the seal of the Holy Spirit on those folks. Lord, for many of us who have confessed our sins over and over, who are adopted into your family, we pray for more of a metamorphosis, for more of a transformation, for more of a hunger to be, no, to live into who we really are. You say that we are children of light through faith in Jesus. Help us, Lord, to embrace the life that you've already died to give us. And forgive us for sometimes preferring the shadows. Amen.